Exodus chapter number 23 this morning. And uh, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 23. The children of Israel, they've come out of Egypt. Uh, they've been given the law uh, and uh, the first time, amen, and then they've messed it up. They were humans just like you and I. And uh, God then goes about retelling them, or retelling Moses, the Old Testament law. And Moses, of course, is pinning it down. But they are on the, the precipice of getting ready to go in, in their minds anyways, into the promised land. Something you'll find as you study your Bible is that the trip uh, across the desert, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that it was an 11-day journey. They spent 40 years trying to go 11 days, amen? And that reminds us that in the Christian life, uh, what God has for us and desires for us is within our grasp if we will just by faith trust Him and obey Him. Because of their unbelief, they spent 40 years wandering in circles in the wilderness. And uh, uh, the Lord eventually, of course, after the death of Moses, they do go in. But before they can go in, every one of them that was above the age of 20 perishes in the wilderness. It also reminds me of this, that if you don't want to go in, God will find somebody that does. Amen? Uh, if we persist in our unbelief, if we persist in our rebellion, eventually God will just let us stay there. Uh, he won't, uh, if we've been saved by the grace of God, He won't take away our salvation. He won't send us to hell, but He might just let us waste our lives in the wilderness if uh, we're not careful. But in their minds, they're on the precipice. They've not yet began this life of unbelief, and they believe they are getting ready to go into the promised land in the next few days. And uh, God gives them instructions concerning the conquest of the promised land. They were going into this land, and there was somebody there before they got there. Amen. So how were they going to take this land and settle this land and enjoy the things that God had promised them? And so God gives His battle plan, His overall structure for what's going to take place to the children of Israel, beginning in verse number 20. The Word of God says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the land which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Some of you are saying, who are those people? Well, God keeps His promises. Amen. That's why you don't know who those people are. Uh, verse 24, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt uh, utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and He shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. Somebody ought to shout right there. Amen. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, uh, and the Hittite from before thee. Verse 29, I want you to notice this. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year lest the land become desolate, and the beast of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert 
unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you and thank you for this day. Uh, What a privilege it is to be in your house, Father. Uh, We had to go through the water, but we could have been under the water. And Lord, we just ought to praise you that you've given us another day to be here, to rejoice, to hear the preached word, to sing the songs of Zion, and to have an opportunity to deal with thee. I pray, Lord, that we'd take that opportunity, that our hearts and ears would be open, that, Father, we would lay ourselves before you and uh, surrender to you and allow you to deal with us after your will. We know, Father, your will is always best. Help us, Father, to embrace it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice what God says in verses 29 and 30. He says to the children of Israel, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit The land. I want to preach to you for a little while this morning on this thought, little by little. You know, when you look at the land of Canaan in the Word of God, and some of you, you know this, you've been taught this your whole life, and other of you, I'm getting ready to shiver your timbers, so pay attention. Uh, The Bible, we often have been taught that Canaan is a picture of heaven in the Word of God. I've heard it my whole life. uh, We sing songs, you know, to Canaan's land. I'm on my way. I feel like traveling on. And uh, we sing about where the soul never dies, about being in Canaan land. And I'll say this, I don't have a single problem with any one of those songs. But as you study the Word of God, you'll find this, that Canaan in the Bible is not a picture of heaven. Now, if you want to believe that, it won't send you to hell. But you'll be wrong about it. Amen? Because Canaan is not a picture of heaven in the Word of God. Canaan is a picture of the life that God desires for His children. We might call it this, the victorious Christian life. See, Canaan, for a lot of reasons, reminds me uh, that it is a land that is uh, not picturesque of heaven. Now, I'll give you one of them before I even preach it. It was a land filled with giants. Amen? There were battles, there was warfare, there was struggle. There were pagan gods in Canaan that had to be broken down. We just read about that and cast out. Now, i got news for you. If I get to heaven and I've got to kick somebody out of my mansion before I can live there, I'm going to be mighty upset. Somebody say amen to that. He said, I prepare a place for you. Canaan was a place that though God had prepared in many ways, it was a place that was already occupied by other people. So Canaan is not picturesque of heaven. If you want to think that and believe that, that's fine. I won't be mad at you. But the Word of God teaches us that Canaan is a picture of the life that God has planned for us as believers. You know, God has a lot planned for you and I. In fact, the Bible says that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Most of us are running around on half a tank living half a life. Most of us are not enjoying what God has provided for us. And listen, I'm not talking about new clothes and new cars and new houses. I'm talking about living in spiritual victory. I'm talking about seeing God do mighty things in our lives, in the lives of others. I'm talking about the privilege and joy it is uh, to be an instrument for God's will and for God's cause in sharing the gospel and encouraging others. I'm talking about the spiritual blessings that God has for you and I. Half of us walk around all the time nervous, jittery, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go. But God's promised perfect peace to those that would live in His strength and in His power. I'm just telling you this morning, God has big things for you and I if we'll by faith follow Him. 
just as He had for the children of Israel. I want to give you a few things that make me uh, think and remind me that this is a picture of the victorious Christian life. Let me say, number one, that Canaan was a foretold land. In other words, God had promised to Abraham whenever he left from Ur of the Chaldees, he said, every place where on the sole of your foot treads, that's going to belong to you one day. This was not something that was in question. The legality of their process was not disputable. The right that they had to that land was not debatable. God, who is who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, amen, and the hills underneath them. And Billy Kelly used to say, and the taters in the hills, amen. All of that land belonged to God. He and He alone has the right to give it. He can give it to him whomsoever He will. And He promised that land to Abraham. In the same way, you know, the Bible teaches us that God uh, has a promised life that He has called us to. And there are a lot of verses I could read about this, but uh, immediately as I meditated on this passage, my mind went to Romans chapter 6. Paul's talking about those of us that are saved by the grace of God and what that means to be saved and how that should change us. And he says this in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, listen now, in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe also that we shall also live with Him. In other words, what's God saying? He's saying when God saves you, He changes you. Hey, listen, we can't go to Calvary and say, I died, my sins died with Christ at Calvary, and then walk around and not define what that life is that we're walking in and that newness that we're living and experiencing. And so Paul says, hey, just like Christ, if our old man died with him on Calvary, then the new man raised with him from the grave, and it ought to change our lives, and we ought to live in the power of God's resurrection. See, Canaan was a foretold land. It was promised. It was what God had already declared belonged to the children of Israel. In the same way you and I, God has promised us a life of faith and a life of victory and a life of of encouragement in the Word of God. Uh, But we must by faith appropriate it. We must by faith trust God and follow God. Hey, listen, Paul said this, uh, that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He said in the book of Romans, If God gave us His Son, shall He not also with Him deliver up all things unto us? Hey, we're not only just children of God, but we're heirs of God. Join heirs with Christ. As such, we all live in the power of it. Now, we'll say a little bit about what that means here in a little while, but I just want to exhort you in saying this, that if you're living a miserable life, uh, and, and I don't mean a life that has sorrow in it. Every life has sorrow in it. Every life has challenge and difficulty in it. But I'm saying this, if you're living under the water, <laughs> that ain't where God is. He's over top of the water. God has called you to a higher uh, level of living. It was a foretold land, but let me say this, it was a foreign land. This was not the land that Abraham was from. This is not the place that was familiar to them. In fact, when they went into the land, one of the things God cautioned them against is He said, don't start worshiping their gods. Don't start adopting their practices. Don't start marrying their citizens because it's going to change the way that you live. And God's plan was for them to change Canaan, not Canaan to change them. 
And as such, it was a foreign... It, we might use this word, it was an unnatural place to them. They were not naturally in a condition to enjoy that land. You know, the same thing is true about you and I. In our natural strength, we can't enjoy the life that God has given to us. It's part of the reason so many of us walk around so miserable. We're trying to walk in the strength of the flesh and enjoy the fruit of faith. Uh, we're trying to live in our own well-being or in our own strength, in our own capability. We're living lives of carnality and then expecting spiritual results. It's never going to happen, friend. We're going to have to get with God's program. We're going to have to walk in the Spirit of God if we want to enjoy the spiritual blessings that walking in the Spirit of God brings. It was an unnatural thing. Can I just say this before I move on? That means this, uh, that you, if you ain't never got there, then you ain't there yet. I'm not talking about getting saved by the grace of God. Hey, listen, we don't have to do anything to get saved uh, other than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and He'll forgive us and save us from our sins. But I'm saying this, living in that victorious life, if you, ain't, if you ain't never got there, then you're not there. It's not something that you're just already there. You're already okay. You're already where you need to be. Uh, Nicodemus had this sort of same thought when he came to Christ, and Christ nailed him to the wall over it. He said, listen, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The natural birth wasn't enough. Now, he was talking about soul salvation, but what is the truth he was conveying? Nicodemus, you think you're all right, but you ain't all right. You think in your natural condition that you're seeing and enjoying what God has for humanity, but you're not. And in the same way, those of us, we may have been saved by the grace of God, but listen, if we're not walking by faith, we're not enjoying that land. It's a foreign land. We're not naturally there. But then let me say this, it is a fruitful land. It's a land of milk and honey. Uh, it's a land where the Bible says that when the spies went out and viewed the land, and this tells you something about the difference in perspective. Some of them came back and said, boy, there's big giants there. And others of them came back and said, yeah, but did you see the size of the clusters of grapes there? The clusters of grapes were so big that it took two men walking with them strewn out on a pole for them to even carry one cluster of grapes. You said, why is that? Well, I guess big people need big food, amen? And so this was like nothing they had ever seen. And I, I want to be too cautious because it'll be easy just to park here and preach the rest of my sermon away and not get said what I ultimately want to get said. But God has grand things for those that will follow Him. Grand things. I've seen things in my life, spiritually speaking, that I could have never seen if I was trying to live and operate in my own strength. Now, there's no telling the things I've missed out on because of stubbornness and rebellion. So I don't claim, hey, listen, I'm like Paul, not as though I were already perfect either and already attained. He said, but I follow after. And what he's saying is this. I'm not saying I got it all figured out, but I figured out enough to tell you there's something to figure out. I've seen enough to tell you that it's unbelievable what God can do in your life if you'll follow Him by faith. It was a fruitful land. But then I'll remind you this before we get to the preaching. It was a fortified land. It was a land with armies. It was a land with enemies. It was a land with giants. They weren't going to just walk in and occupy it. Someone had to drive the enemies out. Can I remind you of this? There are obstacles to enjoying, spiritually speaking, the life that God has for us. Hey, we all have giants in our life. We all have sins and self-will and doubts and fears and things that hinder us from living the life that God has called us to. What can we do about those things? How can we tackle these things? Uh, no doubt there's people in this room that you've been to this altar a hundred times over the same giant that you've tried to slay. And every time you get back to your seat, he's sitting there waiting on you. I ain't talking about your spouse neither, amen? Some of you, hey, you've tried to surrender your 
life and your desires and your vision, your ambition to God, if you're like me, hey, your greatest enemy is the one that looks back at you in the mirror in the morning. You've tried to surrender that thing to God. You've tried to surrender unto Him time and time again. But every time that you get back up, He gets back up. And you're still fighting it. Some of you got doubts and things that you're discouraged about. You're trying to trust God with, but man, you just can't seem to find a way to trust God with. And you've come and you've put it on this altar and you've put it on this altar and you've put it on this altar. And it's like that thing's tied to your shoelaces. Every time you walk back to your seat, it just drags back with you. How are we going to get victory over these things? How are we going to make progress? You see, that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about progress. I'm talking about being closer to God next week than we were last week. I'm talking about tackling sins that we struggled with last week. We don't want to struggle with them next week, and so we give them to God and get victory over them. I'm talking about making spiritual progress. How can we do that? Well, I want you to notice three things about God's battle plan that I believe will help and encourage us as we seek to walk in Canaan's land. And I'll go ahead and give them to you ahead of time. Number one, He delivered them miraculously. Miraculously. Number two, He delivered them incrementally. This is an important truth. And then finally, we see He delivered them thoroughly. You know, the reality is this. We're impatient people. Man, we want victory tomorrow. In fact, we want it yesterday. And as such, it's hard sometimes to wait. By the same token, we're the type of people, I, I am anyways, I, it's usually easier for me just to do it myself than to trust God with it. Now, I always make a mess of it. But I'm saying, if I'm looking at what takes more effort, it usually takes greater effort, emotionally and spiritually speaking on my part, for me to step back and trust God with a situation than it does for me to run headlong in it and make a mess out of it and try to fix it myself. Notice what the Lord says in these verses. And I want you to pay close attention. Look at verse 27. The Lord says, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. So number one, he promises to deliver them miraculously. He says, listen, you don't have to fight these battles. I'm going to fight these battles. I'll go in before you. He says, I'll send my fear before you so that they'll tremble. He even says he's going to send hornets. Now, I don't know if they were literal hornets or, or figurative hornets, but I know one way or the other, I don't like any kind of hornet. Amen? And he says, in other words, I am going to go before you and miraculously drive these people out of this land. I want you to consider two thoughts with me. Number one, I want you to think about what he didn't need from them. Now, if this was going to get done, if the enemies were going to be driven out, if the land was going to be claimed, there were some things God didn't need and some things God did need. And here's where we get things mixed around. Number one, we notice that he didn't need their strength. He didn't say, hey, what I need is for you to try your best and work your hardest and you go in there and you really fight, you dig you some trenches and you get out there with your sword and with spear and with bow and with arrow and I need you to drive these enemies out because I'm not capable. That's not what God said. God said, if you'll get out of the way, I'll drive the enemies out. You know, here's our number one mistake. And we're in February, so everybody's forgot about their New Year's resolutions now. Amen? But... uh that's why everybody got quiet, because they know I'm hitting... Hey, listen, uh, they say you want to quiet the wagon down, you just load it down a little bit, amen? Some of y'all got quiet, you know. You're sitting there thinking, man, I ain't been to the gym since January 3rd, amen? You know, we think that God needs our help to get things done. 
We think if we come down to an altar, and listen, I'm for the altar, and I'm for tears of repentance, and I'm for giving things over to God. But we think if we just try hard enough, if we just commit hard enough, if we just promise God more, if we just try to really mean it this time, that's what God needs out of us. You know, God does not need a moment of commitment. God needs moments of commitment. This is one of the things we've tried to teach my little boy. He he will say to us a lot of times, he'll get in trouble and we'll fuss at him and discipline him and he'll say, I'll never do that again. And we say to him over and over again, son, you don't have to promise to never do that again. What you need to promise us is to do better next time. Let me tell you what God doesn't need in order for us to have victory in our lives. He doesn't need our resolutions. He doesn't need our reformations. And He doesn't need our renovations. He doesn't need us to turn over a new leaf. He needs to turn us to turn over our life to Him day by day and to walk by faith surrendered unto Him moment by moment, day by day. You know why some of you struggle with it? Because you're trying to promise God the next ten years when what you ought to be doing is just uh, promising to Him the next ten hours. Lord, the next time that temptation comes, I'm going to try to lean on You. I'm going to try to uh, walk with You. I'm going to try to surrender to You. I'm going to try to resist. But no, so oftentimes we want to promise Him the whole thing. And we think if in our strength, if we just try hard enough, we'll get victory. Where's that gotten you? Where's that gotten you? The reality is this, and a lot of it's because we want a quick fix. We want to come to an altar one time and say, Lord, I'm done with this and be done with it and never have to face it again. But the reality is you face your flesh every single day of your life. And that means every single day of your life you're going to have to surrender to God. And just like Paul said, that's why he said, hey, I die daily. We get intimidated. We think, I can't tell God. I can't promise that I'm never going to do this again. But God's not even asking us to. God's asking us to come down and, number one, repent of what we've already done. Say, Lord, I've sinned. I've messed up. Please forgive me. Restore fellowship. I need communion with you. And then for the rest of the day, to commit our day unto God, moment by moment. When you wake up tomorrow, do it all over again. And you know, if you can learn to do that every day of your life, you'll live a life for Christ. He doesn't need our strength. Number two, He doesn't need our strategies. He didn't gather the children of Israel around a big table and say, All right, boys, what do you think? How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? You know, sometimes we think if we can just come up with the right approach towards dealing with our problems. Now, I'll admit to you, I'm not what you'd call a textbook overthinker. Amen? Never been accused of it. But I know there's probably some of you out there that are. And you think if you can just figure out the right combination and the right way, if you can just get this out of your life and put this into your life, if you can just adjust it and tweak it and get it just right, if you can just come up with a plan, then you can fix it. Truth is this, God's already got a plan and it's better than your plan. What you need to do is surrender unto His plan. What He didn't need, He didn't need their strength, He didn't need their strategies. But what did He need? He needed two things from them. The first thing He needed was for them to have faith. They were never going to go into that land if they didn't first believe that God could clear that land. And you know what we need to do? The first thing we need to do is we need to believe that God can give us victory over these things. No doubt there's people in this room that have things in their life they've been battling with for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you have resigned yourself that you're never going to see victory over it. But it's not God that's resigned about it. It's you that's resigned about it. We need to believe that God's able. We need to believe that God's capable. Hey, listen, God's capable of getting your temper under control. God's capable of getting your thoughts under control. 
God's capable of giving you boldness to witness. God's capable of giving you faithfulness to the house of God. God's capable of making you a student of the Word of God. God's capable of making you a prayer warrior. The question is not if He's capable. The question is whether we will trust Him that He is capable of it. We have a big God, and we think too little of Him. We think too little of Him. Most of us, the very epitome of faith that we have is to ask God to take away a disease or to pay a bill. Meanwhile, we're standing on the precipice of Canaan. All that is before us, for God to give us victory, for us to walk in strength, for us to be used of God. And we're standing over there saying, Lord, please take care of these mosquitoes. It's silly. It's foolish. And it's unbelief. God needed them to have faith. In fact, there was a whole generation of them that fell in the wilderness. Forty years they wandered. You know what the book of Hebrews says? That they did not enter in, they could not enter in because of their unbelief. Hey, the giants that had been there 40 years earlier were still there 40 years later when God conquered the land. God gave them victory then. In fact, we find that one of the two men that actually trusted God in those early days, there was Caleb and Joshua, that Caleb, when he gets into the land, there's a certain mountain that he wants, and there's a bunch of giants living on it. And he says, I don't care if I'm 80 years old. That's my piece of property. God promised it to me. And he goes up and in the strength and power of the Lord drives those giants off of that land. He had believed God before. He was still believing God then. The same faith that would have been that was effective then would have been effective before. Wonder how much further you could be in your walk with God if you had started trusting Him ten years ago. They needed faith. For 40 years they wandered around because they had no faith. It wasn't because they had no strength. It wasn't because they had no weapons. It wasn't because they were unable, because they were always unable. It was because they wouldn't trust God. We have to believe God's able to do that. We have to believe, hey, listen, we, and this is true for our church life as well. Can I exhort you as a pastor for a moment? This has to be true for our church life as well. We have to trust that God's able to do an an abundant thing in this place. And I'm not talking about buildings, and I'm not talking about numbers, and I'm not talking about properties. I'm talking about God changing lives, saving sinners, mending and fortifying marriages, building people up in the most holy faith. We have to trust that God's able to do it if we're going to see God do it. Not because God is empowered by our faith, but because God is permitted by our faith. Because if we're not trusting Him, we're not going to go into the land. And God's not going to clear the land out just for it to grow over. They needed faith. And then number two, they needed to follow. Wouldn't have done any good for God to have cleared out the land if they wouldn't have gone in and settled it. In fact, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But you know, if we're going to see victory in our lives, we have to be willing to follow God. This is where folks sometimes get mixed up. Because they say, well, there's faith and there's works. And is there a difference between the two? Let me say this. I believe absolutely one million percent that we are saved by grace through faith, uh, not of good works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing that I do that incurs favor before God. My works do not make me saved. Uh, the things I do for God do not secure my salvation. They do not provide for me favor. Uh, God doesn't love a good Christian more than He loves a bad Christian. My faith has nothing to do with my spiritual standing with God. But if I have faith, it's going to produce something what James says. He says, faith without works is dead. He doesn't say faith without works is impossible. He says, faith without works is dead. It's ineffective. There's no, there's no life. There's no force to it unless it has works. You know, they had to have faith. And you know how they were going to evidence their faith? By following the Lord into Canaan. 
We have to be willing to obey God in our lives. And I'm going to draw a real distinction with this while, when we come to the end of the message. God doesn't need us to defeat the enemies, but He does need us to occupy the land. We have to be willing to go forward in our spiritual life. So many of us are satisfied to be right where we've been for the last 20 years. Let me ask you something. Are you closer to God today than you were last year? If you're not, does it bother you? Are you, hey, are you more faithful to God's house today than you were 20 years ago? If not, does it bother you? Uh, do you pray more today than you did five years ago? If not, does it bother you? You say, preacher, you're fussing at me. You're telling me you got everything. No, I ain't got everything figured out. But I'm telling you this. Hey, listen, there's a lot of things lacking in my life, and they bother me. And I'm not saying you need to be perfect. I'm saying you need to be bothered when things are not growing and progressing and moving forward. In your spiritual life, you've got to be willing to follow. You've got to be willing to move forward. And we're not, listen, again, we're not talking about visible things that we necessarily see. We're talking about spiritual growth. You need to be closer to God today than you were a year ago. If you're not, something's wrong, and you need to ask God, where have I grown lazy? Where have I not had faith? Where have I not moved forward? So He promised to deliver them miraculously. Now, here's the part ain't nobody in this room going to like. Look at verse 29. The Bible says, I will not drive them out from the, uh, before thee in one year lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. He says, By little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased and inherit the land. He says, I'm going to drive them out, but I'm going to drive them out incrementally. In other words, I'm not going to drive them out in one fell swoop. It's going to take time. I said at the beginning of the message, and it's still true now, (laughs) that we're all impatient creatures. Man, we want victory now. I don't want to wait. Hey, listen, it's funny, man. A uh, hundred years ago when people would go to uh, get something to eat, man, it was an all-day thing. Uh, I, I've heard, uh, I, I remember my grandmother and I've heard my parents talk about it too. My gra- when she woke up in the morning at 4 a.m., she started fixing breakfast. When breakfast was done, she started fixing lunch. When lunch was done, she started fixing supper. When supper was done, she went to sleep, woke up, did it again. You know why she did that? Because that's what it took. Everything you did, you did from scratch. Hey, and even uh, her parents and grandparents, they was cooking over fire, uh, wood fire oftentimes, and it was a big production just to have food. You want to know what people did for fun a hundred years ago? They survived. I mean, really, that's the truth. You know why our culture is, is as silly and foolish and, and corrupt as it is today? We, we don't have to survive anymore. You ain't got to do nothing to survive but draw a breath. Hey, somebody will come along and take care of you. 150 years ago, people like that, they fell in a creek and drowned. I'm saying this, that it was a production. Nowadays, we'll sit in the fast food line, and if they hand that food out that window to the person in front of us, and if two seconds passes and they've not moved, we're on that horn. We'll sit in that line, and if somebody, hey, if it takes five minutes, and this is funny, you ought to sometimes just sit there and look at your watch for five straight minutes. Man, it's a long time. It's just five minutes. We are impatient. We want everything now. We want it immediately, and we want it perfectly. But the reality is this. The Christian life, Canaan, is not conquered in a year. It takes time. He says, you're not going to get it all done at once. But I'm going to drive them out little by little. Some of you, you know what happens? You come and you ask God to take your life and to make it something special and something wonderful. And then you walk out these doors and you face temptation one time and you give up. You're discouraged. You say, well, I I tried to give my life to God. Hey, listen, it took you 20, 30, 40, 50 years to get in this mess. You think it's going to be cleared out in five minutes? It takes time. 
He says little by little. We see their gradual advancement. But I want you to notice their natural adversary. There's a reason God says this. There is not only the fact that it would take time, but God intentionally takes time. Because the truth is this. God was capable of wiping every one of the Canaanites off the face of the earth in a moment if He had wanted to do so. And you know, in the same way, God is capable of supernaturally removing from us the impulse to sin and to do wrong if He wanted to do so. God is not limited in any way. But He doesn't do that. Instead, it's an incremental thing. Why does He do this? Well, I think we get a clue in verse number 29. Notice what He says at the end. He says, Lest the land become desolate, and the beast of the field multiply against thee. So, in the land of Canaan, there were two basic things they had to fear. They had to fear the giants, and they had to fear the beasts. The giants were an external enemy. And they could drive the giants out, but if they didn't occupy the land then the beasts would come in and would take it over. You know why it is that God incrementally gives us victory in our life? Because we have two types of enemies. We have an external enemy and we have an internal enemy. The external enemy are the fears and sins and self-doubts and and uh, lack of faith, the unbelief, whatever it might be. Those things that we're trying to conquer. i got news for you. Hey, listen, there's another enemy that can rear his head. If we had everything straightened out, we'd be given over to pride. We'd be given over to self-deification. We'd be given over to the worship and idolatry of self. And so as God drives these enemies out, He has to do it in measure, listen carefully, with our spiritual development and maturity. You know why there's some things, and listen, some of y'all aren't going to understand what I'm saying, but some of y'all, I'm speaking your language. You know why it is that God lets you struggle? Because you'd be in a lot bigger mess if you didn't struggle. You know why He doesn't just give you an amazing, perfect, spotless life tomorrow? Because you'd make a mess of it if He did. You might not be bowed down under the weight of burdens, but you'd be lifted up under the force of pride. And so, you know what He has to do? He can only drive out the external enemy in accordance with how He's beaten down the internal enemy. This is the reason that He does it little by little so that He can bring us along in spiritual development. If He did not, if He drove them all out, it would have been a futile effort because the beast of the field would have took it over. And I tell you this, uh, it's just as bad to be prideful as it is to be permissive. We live in a society today that will tolerate anything except a Pharisee. Right? You can be anything, you can live any way you want, as long as you're not perceived as hypocritical. Then, then that doesn't, that, that's all that matters. Uh, you know something? Some of y'all ain't gonna like this, but God loves Pharisees just like He loves publicans. And, uh, God wants to see the Pharisee delivered of his hypocrisy and pride the same way He wants to see the publican freed from his sin and permissiveness. But oftentimes in our life, it's, it's easy to look at it and to dismiss our own self-pride. Uh, you know, the, don't nobody deserve to be loved the way that they are except us. That's the way we feel about it. You know how God said it, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, his own self. The truth of the matter is this, our pride is as big an enemy as our permissiveness. And only in as much as we are humbled by what God is doing in our life can God do things in our life. Because God will never do anything in your life to your detriment. God will never do anything in your life that's going to hurt you. And so God gives us victory incrementally. But you know what happens? Little by little, God says... I'll drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. We see their eventual advantage. It wouldn't be quick. It wouldn't be immediate. But little by little, eventually, they would gain the victory in their life. Our problem is we stop when it's slow. 
we give up when we don't have patience. We don't go victory by victory, moment by moment, tackling giant by giant. Instead, we want to say, Lord, wipe out every giant in my life right now where I give up. But if we'll be patient, if we'll be persistent, hey, listen, if we'll not abandon the land that He gives us, let me say that again. If we won't abandon the land that He gives us. So oftentimes He drives some giants off. We walk around that piece of property. We say, boy, this is nice. Then we turn around and leave and quit occupying it. No, you've got to maintain what God's doing in your life. You've got to keep walking forward with God. Don't back up. Don't turn around. Don't step backwards. Just keep pressing forward. You ain't got to move much, but if you'll keep moving, then you'll wind up covering a lot of ground. He says, eventually, you'll inherit the land. This is what Paul meant when he said, I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. He's saying, listen, God saved me to change my life and to make me like Christ. And he says, there's a lot of ways that I'm not like Christ. He says, not as though I were already perfect, neither had already attained. He said, I'm not saying I'm the perfect picture image of Christ. But he did say this, but I follow after. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward unto those things which are before. He said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? God has foreordained that you and I would be made conformed to the image of God's dear Son. The prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is we become like Jesus. Paul says, I'm not like Jesus the way I want to be, but I'm sure not like Saul the way I used to be. And I'm moving forward, inch by inch, click by click, tooth by tooth in the gear. And I'm trying to follow after. I'm not perfect, hey, but I'm moving forward. Let it be said of our lives, hey, you ain't perfect, I ain't perfect. But let it be said we're moving forward, not backwards. And let it be said we're moving and not standing still. You don't have to conquer the whole land, but if you'll take the next step that God gives you, then there'll be a step after that. We see in this passage that He delivered them uh, miraculously and incrementally, but finally, and I'm just going to say a quick word about this and be done. He promised to deliver them thoroughly. He says in verse 31, by, uh, well, let's back up verse 30. He says, By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. He says, And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the sea of the Philistines. That's a north and south bound. He's saying from the Red Sea up to the Mediterranean Sea. And then he says, And from the desert unto the river. And you, you can say what you want, but I don't believe he's talking about Jordan. I believe he's talking about the Euphrates. Amen. He ain't talking about Jordan. He ain't talking about no West Bank, East Bank stuff. He's talking about from the desert to the Euphrates. And he says this, For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. I want you to notice, number one, there was a perimeter that was defined. Now, this is an important truth. I don't want you to miss it. There is such thing as victory. There is such thing as failure. There is a perimeter. There was land God had for them. There was land that God never expected them to conquer. Here's the spiritual application you need to understand. So oftentimes we'll hear people say things like this. Well, I ain't never going to be perfect. That's true. Until you get to heaven, you're never going to be perfect. But that don't mean you have to be passive, and it certainly don't mean you have to be perverse. Uh, nobody's asking you to be perfect, but we use that as a cop-out. By the way, that's, that's a negotiation tactic. You set the bar un, unachievably high. That way, people just lose all reference and standard of what truth is. And that's what we do. We say, well, hey, listen, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I ain't never going to be perfect. I ain't never going to be everything I need to be. Oh, yes, one day you will be everything you need to be. The question is, before you leave this life, how far are you going to get? 
How much are you going to look like Jesus? There is a perimeter. There is victory. There is failure. Let's stop this, this permissive nonsense of saying, well, it don't matter because we're all just sinners saved by grace. Hey, you may be a sinner saved by grace, but don't put the emphasis on sinner. Put the emphasis on saved by grace. The grace of God teacheth us, the Bible says, that denying ourselves uh, that, uh, and denying ungodliness, denying ourselves, we can become more like Christ, Paul wrote in the pastoral epistles. I'm saying this, there is a, a perimeter that is defined. There is such thing as victory. I gave this illustration to my Sunday school class, and I'll share it with you very quickly. If we consider this in terms of military standards... Think with me for a moment. Imagine that a country was going to war. How would they define victory? Would victory be defined as no casualties? No, of course not. They understand going to war, there's going to be casualties. Would victory be defined as achieving the goal at all costs? No, not necessarily. Because there would be a measure of life you wouldn't want to lose in order to achieve the victory. Here's how victory is determined in a military setting. Minimizing the casualties and achieving the goal. If you can get the job done and save as many lives as possible, you've achieved victory. Now, let's take that into the spiritual realm. If we consider the casualties a picture of our mistakes and sins and setbacks and wickedness and ungodliness, the things that we do, you know what victory is? The goal is to become like Christ. The casualties are when we sin and do wrong and disbelieve God. If we can minimize the casualties while achieving the goal, we've gained victory. You don't have to be perfect, but hey, you need to be progressing. You don't have to be spotless, but you ought to be separated and sanctified and getting closer to God day by day. There was a perimeter defined, but then notice this. There was a persistence that was demanded. And I'm really echoing what I've already said, so I'm not going to dwell heavily on it. But God says this in verse number 31 at the very end. He says, For I will deliver the inhabitants out of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Now, God's not talking about them fighting the battle because God's already fought the battle. But He's saying this, the result is in your hands. I'll drive them out, but they'll only stay driven out if you'll set up camp and make a life in the land that I've procured for you. If you won't occupy that land, if you won't live there, if you won't stay there, if you won't keep the ground that's gained, then the enemies will move back in. You know, in our life I've learned this. We like to think of ourselves on this moving continuum of progress. And we like to imagine that once a, 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 a giant is slain, that we're never going to have to fight that same giant again. But the truth is this. We may defeat that giant, or God may defeat that giant for us. But if we won't walk in the strength of that, in other words, it, hey, listen, if God gives you victory in your devotional life, then stay faithful and diligent in your devotional life. If God gives you victory over a certain sin in your life, don't go back to it. If God gives you victory in being faithful to God's house, uh, don't lay out and give it up. Because i got news for you, it's a lot easier to give it up than it was to get it in the first place. I'm saying this, when He opens up land, live on it. Walk on it. Because if you don't, that giant may not be back, but another one will set up camp. Little by little. You don't have to get the whole land today. You don't have to get the whole land tomorrow. But I wonder if there'd be some folks in this room that would, by faith, take a step and say, Lord, I'll follow you. I can't fix everything in my life, but this that I'm struggling with right now, and this that I'm uh, dealing with right now, and this that has gotten victory over me right now, I can give this to you, God, and I can, by faith, trust you with this. I'm not asking for a lot, but I believe the Lord's asking for just little by little in your life. 
I'm serious. Don't come up here and promise God the moon. Just come up here and say, Lord, I'll give you the next step. I'll give you the next day. And you'll find that if you'll do that not only today but tomorrow and every day after it, we could do an experiment. You know what you'd find? If you did that faithfully for the next seven days, you'd be amazed how your life would change. Little by little. Let's pray.